News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you've likely heard the phrase self-fulfilling prophecies, but have you ever wondered how far this goes back and if there really is a concrete example of self-fulfilling prophecies, well, working out? They have occurred throughout ancient and modern history alike, greatly shaping the world we live in today. And joining me now to talk more about these prophecies, whether or not they can be beneficial, is Tim Brinkhoff, who is a reporter for Big think. Tim, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. This is an interesting uh, look at self-fulfilling prophecies and a bit of the history of self-fulfilling prophecies. What got you started down that road or looking into that? Well, of course, the famous example of self-fulfilling prophecies that everybody is familiar with is the story of Oedipus from the Greek play by Sophocles, which is um, about a person who, according to the fates, was destined to kill his father and sleep with his mother and then try to take, you know, logical measures to avoid that fate, but it was precisely in avoiding it that he ended up helping that fate come true. Um, and it's a very, you know, outrageous and shocking story, but there is actually a lot of reflection in it of the real world. It's, it's not just relegated to fiction, but it also happens in everyday life and in, in the broader scheme of history. And that's something that I wanted to explore. And so from that story, and you're right, a very uh, famous story, uh, exploring more into self-fulfilling prophecies, what did you look at uh, as far as, as really what they are and, and how they play a role in our lives? Well, first off, in terms of you know, their role in history, they appear in both ancient and modern history. In ancient history, for example, you can you can look at the Roman Emperor Caracalla, who was very paranoid and constantly consulted with oracles to see if he could predict if anybody was preparing to overthrow him. And at one point, the oracles predicted that his right-hand man, a person called Macrinus, would do so. And Macrinus found out about this, and because Caracalla was probably going to kill him, he killed Caracalla first, in essence, doing something that he probably would never have done had the oracles not predicted or said that he would do such a thing. And then in modern history, you can take an example of a self-fulfilling prophecy of like the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Um, the U.S. famously invaded Iraq after um, the 9-11 September attacks uh, in order to root out terrorism in the region and search for weapons of mass destruction, which turned out to not be there. But by invading Iraq and causing war in the East. The United States, at least according to many historians and researchers, created conditions that allowed terrorist movements to flourish, in essence, creating the very threat that they wanted to stop. Hmm, interesting. Uh, looking at it in, in that sense, I like that you're looking at it kind of these bigger picture stories, because I think often when we think of self-fulfilling prophecies, we think of things like if you believe you're going to find a parking spot, you're going to find a parking spot when you get to your destination and things like that. No, exactly. And there's many other such examples of you know, self-fulfilling prophecies happening in your life where you, in effect, play a role in making them true. Another example could be you know, staying up all night to study for a test or an important exam and then failing because you stayed up all night and spent so much time and didn't get enough sleep. Or or even if you were meeting somebody and you want to make a good impression on them, you're so focused on making a good impression that you actually end up making a bad impression. 
Hmm. And when we talk about self-fulfilling prophecies, how is that different, say, than uh, a daily affirmation? Well, in effect, they are quite similar. They just have an opposite effect. So you could say people who struggle with mental health issues and have a lot of negative thought patterns, those thought patterns are, in a sense, negative affirmations. But the flip side is also true in that positive affirmations can also work as self-fulfilling prophecies. Um, There was a famous study that was done in, I don't remember, oh yeah, it was in the 1960s where psychologists took a classroom and they told teachers to treat a small number of students in the classroom as though they were very gifted to give them special treatment. And what they saw is that the academic performance of those children who received special treatment from their teachers improved compared to the students that were treated regularly. And as far as I'm concerned, that is a proof that that positive uh, affirmations and that self-fulfilling prophecies don't just have to get in our way. They can also be used to our advantage. Hmm. And and, uh, not always negative or not always positive. It, It can really go either way. Yes. And when we look at it as well uh, through history and, and the, the examples that you gave in the, the more uh, well-known stories, uh, even things like conflicts and, and what kind of a role do they play in conflict in that countries? Maybe uh, you expect a country to act a certain way and it turns out that way. How much of that is kind of that, that whole idea of self-fulfilling prophecy? Um, I, I'd say pretty, you could very much describe all of it as self-fulfilling prophecy. It's actually a well-known concept in the field of international relations, and it has been applied, for example, in the relationship that the United States and the West now have with Russia, but more specifically China. Um, these countries are, are, are locked in opposition to each other as a threat and are building up their military defenses in the case that war should break out. Um, but when war does break out, it will be partly because of that relationship. So kind of like the, the idea of people expect something to happen, and the more you expect something to happen, uh, then uh, it's, I guess, not, not the will of the people, but it, it just makes it so there, there is no surprise when that thing happens? Yes, certainly. And that actually, you pretty much just paraphrased a quote that I mentioned in my article that sort of encapsulates this whole discussion about self-fulfilling prophecies, which is from an American psychologist called W.I. Thomas, who said, quote, if men define situations as real, they are real in their consequences. Hmm. So if you hear a self-fulfilling prophecy or encounter one in your daily life, it actually doesn't matter that the outcome hasn't happened yet or maybe even won't happen, but because you treat it as though it will happen, it is more likely to occur. Hmm. So do you think, when you've researched this and looked at this, do you think more so, are, are self-fulfilling prophecies, are they good things? Do they lead to, lead to positive outcomes? Or are they also kind of ways of self-sabotage? Well, as I mentioned earlier, they can really go either way. They can have a bad influence in the case of, let's say, the war in Iraq or U.S.-China tensions, but they can also lead to positive results, as in that psychological experience classroom. Um, I think the key thing, really coming back to Oedipus, is that, you know, more often than not, they are indeed unavoidable. It is not just a, um, a trope um a bit of dramatic irony that only occurs in fiction and stories, um, but it can actually have real-world consequences. That we 
can be aware of, and if we are aware of them, then we can use them to our advantage. Tim Brinkoff, we'll leave it there for today, but appreciate your time so much. Thank you. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time once again to check in with Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News. Rob, good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Let's talk a little bit about what the Premier is saying after his tour of parts of the Okanagan, uh, looking at the wildfire damage, talking to a lot of the evacuees and calling for a uh, new emergency evacuation unit. Yeah, you know, the Premier learned several things, it sounds like, from his tour uh, up into the wildfire-affected areas. And one of them uh, you know, was the delays that people encountered trying to get uh, through and processed at some of the evacuation centers. And he heard from individuals who faced this gigantic line, these delays ended up fleeing their homes like they were asked to do and then spent the evening in their car because they couldn't get processed by the evacuation officials at the centers. And so he uh, pointed out, you know, a lot of this is done by volunteers who step up and help man these evacuation centers and, and try to get things going. But with the increasing number of wildfire and flood and climate change related disasters, maybe we need a team of professionals who know how to run evacuation centers, the best practices, the organization, the system to use, how to move people through it so it doesn't all kind of get uh, gunged up with red tape and delays. And so he's talked about creating some type of standing team of, of experts year round, and that would you know, potentially be deployed to help locals and volunteers know how to do things in an emergency when an emergency strikes. And it's one of the things that he seems to have uh, to have come away with, along with um, <laughs> yeah, even more information about the kind of uh, uh, anger that is brewing in some parts of the province over the wildfires as well. So uh, from talking to him yesterday, you know, he certainly took a lot away from his trip to the area. Right. So and a permanent uh, evacuation team, I guess it sounds interesting. It sounds good. But I wonder if there's a way. I mean, you still it can't be instantaneous that suddenly there's a wildfire that's grown and people are evacuating their homes. It's still going to take some time to set up a center and to make sure everybody's processed and and getting through that. I'm curious if he has an idea or is, is there an acceptable amount of time that this team would then be able to always meet that target. Yeah, he didn't, he sort of said that it's in kind of the early stages of trying to address that concern that he heard. And it may not even be a completely uh, provincial team. He suggested this might be something that the feds uh, could even have uh, in, in place. Although when you talk about delays and, and uh, time, you don't think of efficiency within the federal government when it comes to response. So I'm not sure that would work. But uh, it, it certainly, you know, he came away feeling like the stress of people fleeing their homes was compounded by the stress of arriving at a center, looking for help and getting triaged into this long, long, long line that left people having it. Some people left and came back uh, a day later and, and that didn't fly uh, for him. So I think, you know, the province tried a bunch of other things. They activated uh, these virtual uh, check-in centers that were run at different communities across the province to check people in virtually. They activated a call center through Service BC. Uh, they tried to tackle things uh, that way to reduce the volume, and eventually they got everybody through. But I think they learned a lot in terms of, you know, when you have tens of thousands of people in an urban center suddenly flood an evacuation center, 
you need to have a better plan than just one kind of stitched together in the moment by the volunteers. And so whatever form it takes and whatever guidelines he puts in on it, uh, it would be kind of standing there ready to go uh, at a moment's notice. Yeah, interesting too, hearing that. And when you think of if it's the province that's going to take this over, I mean, this is uh, the same government that when they brought out a camping reservation website, it kept crashing because so many people <laughs> were accessing it. So if you can't even get camping sites for people, I'm not sure there's a lot of faith that, that this would work and this would go out without a hitch. But maybe that's where he's talking about the federal resources and, and if there's something that the federal government could uh, somehow get involved with this as well yeah well camping sites are pretty cutthroat you ever tried to get a camping site i mean you got to get on there at midnight 1201 and keep hitting it's like trying to get tickets to a concert you know it's very and so like yeah but those in those cases they're sort of deploying technology and things that 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 don't work and not everyone um can 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 handle the demand but you're right i mean government doesn't do well in it projects and they wouldn't want to make things worse by creating another level of red tape and bureaucracy uh, and forms and policies and procedures when you're when you're in an emergency. So I think it's a bit of a bit of a delicate balance. But, you know, the premier heard that he heard that frustration uh, when he was up there that you and I have been talking about, about the North Shushwap area, people angry. There was a bunch of developments last night. It was interesting to watch the premier come out yesterday and try to diffuse that situation a little bit. Clearly, he was struck by people telling him they had expertise in that area. They were firefighters, they were heavy equipment movers, they wanted to help, uh, and they were getting kind of treated like thieves mm -hmm. by the wildfire service. And he tried to extend an olive branch yesterday, having the wildfire service come out and say, you know what, maybe we can partner with you if you're an expert in the community. You can be a volunteer for us if you're willing to take orders. Um, we can use your expertise. And that looked like that might have worked. Uh, and then last night, there was a big kerfuffle uh, where a freedom convoy, a convoy of truth and freedom, um, which was reminiscent of the COVID convoys, uh, descended upon an RCMP checkpoint, uh, about a dozen people trying to um, berate the Mounties uh, for blocking supply runs to those who stayed behind in that area. And that devolved into the wildfire service putting out a tweet saying, we're pulling out of that area because it's unsafe. And then they took that tweet down and then uh, I don't think I think that escalation was a small number of people. And, and you you pick up feedback on social media that the local residents weren't happy. Uh, not all of them were happy with that. They felt that was kind of way over the line. And so this this tentative piece that I think the premier had tried to broker uh, through the wildfire service kind of a bit in peril uh, last night for, for North Shushwap as well, but we'll see how that plays out. Continuing now with Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News. And Rob, we were talking about some of the tension in the North Shushwap, the Premier, as you said, trying to give that olive branch to try and see if everybody could work together. We're also hearing, though, from the Forest Minister, and this is, uh, I know there was a report out that showed there were a lot of recommendations that had been made as far as uh, ways to mitigate wildfires to make the season it's not as bad and not a lot of that work has been done. Yeah, it was interesting yesterday. Uh, one of the questions to the Forest Minister Bruce Ralston was, hey, we're spending billions of dollars over years on fighting wildfires. Should we be spending more on preventing them? And his answer was, well, we do spend money on it, but municipalities aren't taking up us on the money we have available. They're not doing enough. 
And it's a bit of a surprising answer, I think, because uh, you should read today's Vancouver Sun and reporter Gord Hoekstra has a story on that. It's also online where he does a pretty good job debunking the forest minister on that claim, saying the problem is with the province and not enough money being available. And we have had at least two reports in the last 20 years comprehensive on what needs to be done to reduce the kind of fuel load, as, as it's called, but it's basically like brushes and uh, you know lower parts of trees and things that could set on fire around communities that make wildfires spread quicker to homes. And in the past 20 years, Hoekstra crunched these numbers, uh, only 10% of that fuel clearing in and around communities that should have been done was actually done. And if you were to do it all, you would spend potentially up to $6 billion. And let me tell you, the province doesn't have $6 billion put aside for wildfire prevention. So he points out in a fun bit of math here, it's going to take 200 years to do the work uh, at this rate. Uh, And uh, that is not what the NDP government said yesterday. And so, you know, Ralston's talking about putting some more money into it. So you have to put a lot more into it when you when you kind of consider uh, what what potentially needs to be done there to to help prevent the spread of fires when they come in contact with communities. It's a really interesting read. Uh, you're right. And looking at how uh, Gord Hoekstra has uh, crunched those numbers and also looking at uh, and, uh, what we've learned in the 20 years since the Kelowna wildfires, uh, the Okanagan Mountain wildfires that destroyed hundreds of homes. And I think that's what kind of what people are, are looking at now, because not a day goes by. I think that that one elected official, we don't hear from an elected official due to climate change, we are going to see more wildfires and this is going to be uh, the the kind of new normal. Okay, but you can't just ignore what Gord has written about, what this report has uh, has shown that that the province hasn't done what it was supposed to do as far as trying to prevent these wildfires. You can't just throw your hands up, yell climate change and say, well, there's nothing else we can do. No, and it's part of the frustration of the political cycle is, you know, politicians respond to emergencies like now, and then the emergency ends and they go on to their other emergencies, public safety, healthcare, hospital wait times, overdose crisis. And it's sort of like, you know, things get left in the wake. And in between wildfire seasons, um, there's not a lot of discussion about wildfire prevention and the reports and the recommendations and the things that haven't been done, you know, by the province. And they have done some things and, and uh, Hoekstra does a pretty good job kind of laying out certain areas. And there is larger discussion of, you know, building code changes and things for climate change, for heat, um, for flooding that and that type of stuff. But, you know, the numbers speak for themselves, right? If we have spent probably by the end of this fire year, more than $6 billion, you know, five to $6 billion since 2008 fighting fires and only like 200 million plus on preventing them. Um, We're out of whack on that. And so we're going to have a union of BC municipalities meeting in Vancouver, uh, all the municipalities in September, they're going to be pushing the province. The province says they might have some more money to, to do things. And we have to switch the mindset on all levels from, as Ralston put it yesterday, sometimes we think of this as kind of make work stuff in between wildfire seasons to critical stuff that needs to be done um, and and not forgotten about in between, uh, you know, uh, what looks like increasingly disastrous uh, summers.
And even those numbers, when when you look at it that way, the $6 billion, so for the same price tag of fighting fires in, in one season, you could potentially stop a whole number of fires, the most expensive ones to fight and save homes. Yeah, I mean, look, the number one cause of fires this year has been lightning strikes. And you can't stop that. And you can't stop the weather. But you can reduce the risk that when fires get close to communities that they tear through the communities, uh, or at least slow them down enough and, and help with a little bit of a fire guard to allow crews to get a foothold in. So the fires are never going to go away. But the impact on structures and the protection around them uh, could be improved and the number of homes and structures still standing could be uh, improved. We're all always going to spend a lot of money, I think, fighting fires. Uh, there's no way around it. And the money is there. But, but we could potentially have better outcomes if we invested uh, ahead of time. Uh, do you think that the forest minister is going to regret saying that, oh, well, the money's there and, and it's only the, the civic governments haven't taken us up on it and haven't done their part? No, you know, government will just spin it. <laughs> government will just spin their way out of it, you know. like uh, So, no, I, I think he'll regret it at the Union of Municipalities who will say to him, well, we've been asking for this money. It's a bureaucratic, red tape, difficult thing for us to apply for and small communities who don't have the bandwidth to fill out the mound of paperwork that's required to get, you know, pennies from the province. But, uh, you know, politicians these days... Um, can just he'll just spin his way his way out of those comments I think but thankfully guys like Gord Hoekstra you know have dug into this over the last two decades and are able to point out that uh, that was a that was a load of uh, something uh, mm. from the forest minister yesterday something indeed Rob thank you so much and we will talk to you again tomorrow Take care. That is Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News uh, with his view from Victoria. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's uh, take a look at what is happening stateside today. Former U.S. President Donald Trump set to surrender to authorities in Georgia. Joining us now to talk about how this is going to unfold is Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. Reggie, good morning to you. Good morning. What are we expecting? How are things going to unfold today? Well, they're going to be a little bit different from what we have seen in the other three uh, kind of surrenders of the former president. Uh, this time around, uh, he's doing so in a jail. We're about 100 meters away from the entrance of the of the notorious Fulton County Jail here uh, in Atlanta. And Trump is going to be here at some point, maybe later this afternoon or this evening local time. Uh, and it is going to be a different experience. He is going to have um, a medical taken. He is going to have his vitals taken, his information. But he's also likely going to have a mugshot taken. And that is likely going to find itself in the public domain like we've seen uh, with other co-defendants in this case so far. This is going to be a different experience for the former president who up until now has been able to do this in a courtroom. And this uh, surrender, uh, it's uh, based on these charges. I know he's, he's worked out a, a bond agreement. Do we expect it to take a long time or this will be, like you said, getting the mugshot done and, and the kind of doing the paperwork? 
Well, you know what's interesting about this, Jill, is that the local sheriff here and law enforcement officials have said that Donald Trump is going to be treated like any other defendant who comes through this jail. But oftentimes, defendants are waiting weeks, if not months, to go through this booking process. Uh, And this is simply something that's going to take maybe 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes, maybe half an hour. It's going to be a very short uh, ordeal before he gets back on his plane and heads back into, uh, into Bedminster, New Jersey. So ultimately, this is going to be another kind of blip on his legal and campaign radar, not nearly as long as somebody else, uh, which, you know, kind of plays into that, that, that kind of complaint that some people have been making that there's a quote-unquote two-tier justice system. Right. Uh, given that uh, we already know that he's agreed to the, the $200,000 bond uh, and then that that's set in place. Uh, I, I know he uh, changed, uh, made a few changes on his legal team before doing this, and uh, he also is maintaining his innocence. Not a huge surprise, I would imagine. No, not a huge surprise. And this is something that we have seen before in the lead up to a couple of his other uh, arraignments. We saw him change up the leading members of his legal team. He's done that again today, switching out the top person in the Georgia case and taking uh, a defender known in the kind of Georgian legal circle as one of the top defenders in the state. Uh, And whether it's because the former president feels that he needs stronger representation or because there potentially is a bit of fear from within his legal team that this could be a more difficult case. Uh, You know, Trump says that it had nothing to do with the work that was being done. It just simply has to do with how he is going to move forward. But again, this is um, this is one of the more serious cases that he is facing of the four, given the fact uh, that it does include a mob statute on racketeering, that there was this alleged coordinated effort amongst uh, the 19 co-defendants to keep Donald Trump in power by overturning election results in this state. And I was going to ask you that, how it kind of compares to the other charges. Like you said, this is the fourth criminal case against uh, Trump, and but, but different. And I think, like what you just said, many look at this as being a much more serious case. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And look, you know, each case can be considered uh, serious in its own way. In Miami, you had the former president accused of holding documents with vital national security pieces involved in it, and and people didn't have the right clearance to be around it. In Washington, D.C., it's a federal case on trying to overturn the election at the national level. Here in the state of Georgia, though, uh, this is different. Again, you have that racketeering charge, you have the conspiracy charge, you have charges against other co-defendants that have to do with computer crimes where voting data systems were hacked and breached by members of, allegedly by, uh, members uh, involved in the elections committee down here. But what's interesting about all of this, Jill, is the fact that if there happens to be a conviction, this is where it's different from the federal level. A conviction in one of the federal cases could be overturned by a pardon from a future president. In Georgia, a president has no ability to pardon a state-level crime, but in Georgia itself, the governor doesn't have the ability to overturn uh, a conviction either, and that has to go to a board that would make a decision five years after any kind of sentence has been completed. So there's a lot riding on this with any kind of legal outcome, um, and that potentially could be why we saw a change up in President, former President Trump's legal team. Hmm. And so uh, going forward, I know with the, with the deadline approaching for Trump and the rest of the co-accused to, to surrender at uh, this jail, what does this say, do you think, or what does this do for tr- uh, Trump's political future? And, and the fact that, like you said, there's going to be a mugshot of Donald Trump that's going to be released to the public. Does this have an impact on his uh, political future? 
Sure. I mean, look, if you look overall at the numbers, 95% uh, of Republicans, according to some most recent polls that were put out, show uh, n- believe that these, these indictments are politically motivated and don't think the president should be facing any kind of legal ramifications for anything that's been done. And when it comes to the mugshot, uh, sure, you're going to see campaign teams, political action groups associated with the with the former president's campaign use it as a fundraising tool, where you also may find Democratic campaigns using it as a fundraising tool as well to say, look, is this the kind of president that we want, one who has been faced, uh, who is facing criminal charges? This is all going to be used by both sides to try and, you know, embolden or bolster their claims that they are the ones who should be moving forward. But ultimately, uh, this is, is likely not going to do anything to damage the support under the former president. He has a, a kind of strong grip on both the party and on the base. And just last night, Jill, at that GOP debate on stage, seven of eight candidates rose, raised their hands and said that they would support Trump if he becomes the ultimate nominee. Hmm. And Reggie, I'm just curious, what, what's the feeling like there? What's the mood like there? I know you're a distance away, but what's it like there today? Well, I mean, it, it's it's still quiet. We don't know when the former president is going to show up. There has been a kind of rallying cry to have his supporters come out here. There have been a few of his supporters walking up and down the street. There have been a couple of big trucks with Trump signs on them moving around. So far, uh, it's quiet. It's subdued. But this is also, uh, you know, it, we're a little further out from downtown. It's a little more um, rural to try and get here. There's, it's, it's, you know, this, anything could happen at any point during the day today. We need to see what ultimately happens. But at the moment, like we've seen for the last few indictments, it's more media than it is anything else. Reggie, always good to chat with you. Thank you so much for keeping us up to date on this. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday morning. Well, we know that almost 200 properties have been confirmed damaged, in some some cases destroyed by wildfires. This is just in the Okanagan region of BC. We also know that homeowners are in some cases still waiting to find out just how much their home has been damaged. A portal is being set up where people will be able to put their addresses into that portal to find out where their uh, home has been damaged or if their home is okay. A lot of this is raising questions about insurance and how to fireproof buildings and uh, make sure that you keep your home uh, as intact as possible. So where does does insurance play a role in this? Sean Sinclair is program head of the General Insurance and Risk Management Program at the BC Institute of Technology and is joining us now to talk a little bit more about this. Sean, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, hi, Jill. Thanks for having me on. Well, I know we tend to talk about this uh, after the fact and only when we're in the the middle or in the the heart of uh, something like a wildfire season. But what do people need to know about uh, their homes, how to kind of uh, keep their their home uh, as, as intact as they can when dealing with things like wildfires? Yeah, so there's some really good resources out there. Um, the BC government's got a, a FireSmart page called at www.firesmartbc.ca. Um, there's a, um, an institute called the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction, and they're at www.iclr.org. And the Insurance Bureau of Canada has got a page on wildfire uh, reduction at www.ibc.ca. And all of these resources 
um, have got the fairly typical um, things you can do, you know, get rid of waste from beside your home, make sure you don't have fire loads, uh, like a, a bunch of, um, say, firewood for next winter sitting right beside your house. So if it catches fire, your house is going to catch fire. Um, there's things you can do with the, the, the siding on your home so it doesn't, isn't going to be as um, flammable as something else. So vinyl siding versus stucco is, is now these are things that you can do while you're building your house, but after it's already built, it makes it kind of tough, but you can get rid of the fire load around your home and, and clean that all up so that it's got less chance of, of getting to your house. And is that something maybe we, we should be doing anyway, especially when homes are being built in beautiful settings, in forested, beautiful areas, but uh, beside forests, which put them more at risk? Is it something that we should be doing anyway, as far as even building codes to make sure that homes are, are more resilient? Absolutely. So there's, you know, the, the, the insurance industry over the, the last hundred years or so has um, sort of lobbied governments to um bring on uh, lots of different ways to sort of reduce death and, and, and fire damage. Uh, for example, the city of Vancouver now has all new buildings must have sprinklers in them. And if you're doing a renovation that's more than, I forget whether it's 10 or 15 percent, uh, you have to sprinkle your home. And so those kind of bylaws are coming in. And certainly there are ways to sort of not fireproof, but fire reduce the, 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 the um, damage to your home. Uh, don't have a, an all wood house with an all wood roof. I mean, it looks beautiful, but those things, if they're in a forest setting, it's going to go just as fast as any limp, limp lumber beside you, right? Right. And is that one of the, the things too, in that we tend to think of forest fires coming through and just, just reducing a swath to nothing. But then when we see the aftermath of them, and, and you'll see there are cases where one house is standing and the homes around it are not. They've burned to the ground. And, and talking about the embers that are flying, and that's what's actually starting the fires and burning the structures down? Yes. So there was actually a really interesting story um, about, a, I think it was a lady in, I think she was in the Kelowna area, who just uh, put a sprinkler on, her, on the roof of her house and left when she was called away. And her, her house is virtually undamaged. Hmm. So the way it, that's, that's sort of an interesting um, thought process, just to throw a sprinkler on your roof so that it, it stays wet. And then if those embers do come, they get put out right away. And uh, her house was sort of saved there. It was an interesting story to, to watch. I'm, I'm not suggesting everyone puts a sprinkler on the roof of their house, but, you know, that, that was one, one thing that she did before she left. Right. And it does show that, yeah, that, that there are things that can be done to, to lessen the risk. Does it change, too, or does it have an impact on, we're hearing from people saying uh, they can't get insurance, that uh, they can't get fire insurance, or if you're in a flood plane, maybe you can't get flood insurance. Does it also have an impact on whether or not you have the ability to insure your home? That's a great question. So um, if I can just talk a little bit about insurance as a whole for a second, and then we, then we can get back to these individual cases. So um, in, insurance essentially is just a big pool of money that uh, we all pay into or all of us with insurance pay into and then losses um, come out of that. And I was just having a read this morning. Um, there's a news article in Canadian Underwriter that said the wildfire damage this year in, in Canada is going to be between estimated between 700 million and 1.5 billion. And another article in this continuity insurance risk news says that globally this year, natural disasters are going to be over a hundred billion dollars in insured losses. So where does a hundred billion dollars come from? So we all pay into this pool of money 
And as it, uh, you know, as we have suffered these losses, the money comes out and, and, and pays for losses sort of globally. So wherever we buy our insurance from, in most cases, they buy what's called reinsurance, which is just insurance for insurance companies. And that spreads those risks globally so that a few pennies of premium that we pay for our homeowner's insurance uh, will also pay for the losses in Hawaii or losses in Europe. And, and we collect back from, from that as well. So it's... Um, if the risk is too great, if you live in a floodplain where you're guaranteed to have your house flooded or destroyed um, every two or three years, your premium has to be 100% of, of what the value of your home is. Right. Does and that, and premiums, yeah, it does. And when we look at it in a, in a global sense, premiums obviously are going to keep going up because like you said, where does $100 billion come from? Exactly. Yeah. So that's what they, they, they call them a hard market. We've been in this for quite a while now where rates are keep going up, especially for, for um, um, certain types of risks. And certainly it's going to be, um, you know, more and more difficult to ensure unprotected um, places in the middle of, uh, of a forest that have no, no fire um, protection. Uh, the, the nearest fire hall is, is 40 or 50 kilometers away. Those are going to be more difficult to ensure. They, they have to be because the risk is significantly higher. And is that why we're, we're kind of seeing this shift or hopefully seeing this shift that, yes, it's important to have insurance, but it's maybe equally as important to do things to, to fireproof or floodproof your home? Absolutely. I mean, it, it, um, it, it's changing from what, like, 25 years ago, you had a claim, you just sit back and, and wait for the insurance company to come in. Um, I, I've always thought that as an insured, it's my responsibility to take every precaution I can and, and mitigate my losses the best I can, like I didn't have insurance. Then the insurance will come in and pay for the stuff that, uh, you know, I, I, I suffer on top of that. But there's, um, there is a, a change to where it's, you know, becoming up to us, especially with a change in deductibles, um, like percentage deductibles as opposed to a, a flat rate deductible. So that means that I pay for a percentage of the loss. A lot of earthquake deductibles now are percentage deductibles, meaning that, you know, if 10 or 15 percent of my insured value, I'm responsible for it before the insurance company pays dollar one. And that could be, you know, on a million dollar house, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Hmm. And, and uh, you raised a good point there as well, uh, that uh, it, it is about knowing your policy, I think, too, and knowing what uh, what you're covered for. So that is absolutely key. Um, you know, I've been in the business for, for quite a while and I teach this stuff. And I don't think I've actually read my policy from cover to cover. So it's, it's a, a difficult thing to get people to read that policy. But boy, is it after a loss, that's one thing you want to get a hold of is your policy and really understand it. And if there's, there's things in there you don't understand, you want to talk to an insurance professional, your agent or your broker or someone you know that can understand the policy wordings and go through it to see whether there are limitations or restrictions that might um, limit the amount payable under the policy. It is good and very timely advice. Sean Sinclair, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, no problem. Thanks very much for letting me on. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, it is a serious problem talking about workplace violence, things such as bullying, harassment, sexual abuse. And there have been numerous stories about institutions meant to uphold law and order. Institutions like the RCMP not immune to this serious issue. Recent incidents, including the inability to effectively manage internal complaints, have come to light. And that is what our next guest is joining us to talk more about. Jason Walker is an associate. Associate Professor and Program Director for Industrial Organizational and Applied Psychology at Adler University. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. This is an important issue and I know it's one that can be very troublesome for people. There are a lot of questions about workplace violence and specifically when we're talking about the RCMP. Uh, You've written about this. Uh, I wanted to start by asking you the Independent Centre for Harassment Resolution. What exactly is is this and where is it falling short? Absolutely, thank you so much. So, after uh, the um, uh, RCMP settlement with 2,000 female police members who experienced sexualized violence in their career, resulting in a $125 million settlement, the RCMP established this independent center. However, it's not independent, it falls under the jurisdiction of the RCMP. Uh, and it has proven to be ineffective in terms of managing the caseload. They've had over uh, 3,000 complaints uh, in the past uh, year and a half, and, and they're unable to investigate. So what they started to do is, is farm this out to independent assessors. And then when the decisions come back, they've been overturned by uh, the courts, uh, where they found that no harassment or bullying has occurred. The court has found it has. So it's inherently, uh, it's inherently broken, unfortunately. And is this more of an issue, or do you think that it's more concerning because we are talking about the RCMP, an organization that mm-hmm. should be holding its members to a higher standard? Right, absolutely. And, you know, workplace violence, bullying and harassment, we see in about 20% of workplaces, um, and, uh, pardon me, 20% of employees experience this who work in Canada. When we look at first responders at 60%, the RCMP has a documented history uh, of not protecting their members in terms of sexualized violence at work. But they're not alone. The Vancouver Police Department, uh, when it came to uh, Constable Nicole uh, Chan, who inevitably took her life, having been psychologically and sexually abused by superior officers for years, there's a systemic issue within law enforcement um, that the police don't seem to be able to manage themselves. And I know that this particular, uh, or what you've written about, there has been a lot of focus on on some of those other cases, but specifically with the RCMP, uh, the focus has been on on a local BC officer and how that case was dealt with, with some very serious allegations. Why do you think it is that that case in particular really stands out? I think the instance of of Constable Flodell's um, uh, finding Uh, by the disciplinary board was that the commissioner or the uh, adjudicator when looking at it said, hey, there's issues here that we're not addressing in terms of it's basically a slap on a wrist for multiple incidences uh, of sexual abuse of colleagues, one to the point where the independent investigative body suggested charges. However, what happened was he got 15-day suspension and was moved to another detachment with a year of supervision. 
And I think what this demonstrates is even when the board raises issues about the consequences being uh, employed, it really underscores a systemic failure in terms of a prevailing culture of silence where we can get away with this, right? Right. So, um, yeah. And with that case, too, uh, and, and that a lot has been talked about the fact that it, it doesn't seem like once you learn the details of that case that the punishment really does fit uh, what that person did. But there have been other cases of RCMP officers with similar allegations, maybe not as as much as that uh, constable, but they got much more uh, more uh, punishment for it. Uh, what does that say about the the independent center uh, for harassment and resolution, and and how they come up with these with with the the punishments? So it's it's actually the conduct board that that comes up with the punishment. The the center uh, uh, investigates the issues. But I think what that demonstrates is that there's no uh, there's no standard. Right. Mm-hmm. It depends on a case to case basis, which, you know, which is important. However, um, when we have these findings that are so different from each other, depending on the gravity of the situation, it sends a very inconsistent message. Now, if you took a look at this, look, if you're in the grocery store, you're standing in line and heaven forbid you're assaulted in line. Well, hopefully you're able to say something. Hopefully other people stand in guaranteed the police are called, guaranteed police attend, and most likely that individual is going to get charged. Now, why is it then in the workplace? When you go to work, we frame that within employment law. And we say, hey, well, you know, this happened, but we're going to justify it. Not only do you keep your job, you, you can get promoted in a few years. We're just going to move the problem. So it raises a significant concern in terms of the erosion of public trust. What do you think needs to be done then? And uh, I know that, uh, again, going back to the case of Constable Flodell, uh, showing that that shows that that there is a need for for change when we talk about workplace violence, and again, specifically with the RCMP, Mm -hmm. what do you think needs to change? Specifically with the RCMP, I believe that the public safety minister needs to step up and acknowledge and make change in terms of the RCMP is not able to police themselves when it comes to harassment, bullying, and sexual misconduct, and it needs to be taken outside. I see workplace violence as a public health issue. It is preventable. It impacts the physical and mental well health of Canadians, and it's really in the domain of uh, Dr. Theresa Tam, and she holds the authority to create a broader national response and mandate. Establishing an independent national commissioner on workplace violence would address these issues. Especially since we are talking about an organization where there are multiple cases and examples that you've laid out, that you've touched on. This is not something that's a one-off. This is a systemic problem. Mm -hmm. This is the unfortunate uh, uh, culture uh, of the RCMP, not all members, and I think that's important to note. There's incredible police officers out there. However, um, when you see your supervisor getting away with sexualized violence at work, and then know that you can do that, and then you see these conduct board decisions where really it's a slap on the wrist, what stops you, right? And then the bigger question, too, is so when that officer attends a call that's dealing with a similar situation in a different context, are they going to apply the law? 
correctly, if they're demonstrating the same behavior, that's a bit scary. It certainly is. And uh, like you're saying, there's so so many questions about this. Uh, Dr. Jason Walker, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. That is Jason Walker, Associate Professor and Program Director for Industrial Organizational and Applied Psychology at Adler University. Let me know your thoughts on this or anything on your mind. Give us a call on the Buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. That's 331-2899. You can text that line. You can email me as well, jill at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this is definitely one of the stranger stories that we have talked about. And it's been a while since we have had a conversation about the number of feet that have washed ashore on B.C. shores. It started in 2007 when the first discovery was made. And we now know that a human foot was found inside a shoe on a Victoria area beach earlier this summer. That was discovered in July. The B.C. coroner's service has been investigating and uh, just yesterday the coroner's service uh, confirmed with check news that yes a shoe containing a human foot had been discovered well joining me now to talk more about this and a bit of the history of the feet that have been found is erica engelhopt freelance science writer also a former science editor for national geographic erica thank you so much for being here Thank you for having me. I'm always interested in talking about your strange and fascinating uh, science of feet washing ashore in your area. Strange and fascinating is a good way of describing it. And uh, I know that you've written extensively about this. So not a huge surprise, I suppose, that another one of these has washed ashore that brings the total since 2007 to 16. Uh, What was your response, though, having spent so much time researching and writing about this story? to learn that there has been another discovery. Yeah, I I mean, I've figured that this would be due to happen again. The last one that I'm aware of was in 2019. And, you know, you're you're located in what's just kind of an unusual and, and special place in that you get an unusual number of these um, these feet washing ashore. It's it's something that has been documented in other places. Um, I, I've heard that places like New Zealand also uh, tend to get a lot of it, and occasionally we'll we'll get them uh, here in the states as well. Um, I've heard of a few cases in Florida, for example, places like that. Um, but it is it is unusual. Um, it's. <laughs> And um, that's what really fascinated me about your area, because the Salish Sea has just had this large number, especially since, as you said, 2007, um, what some people, you know, described as a flood of feet coming through your area. And (laughs) so that, of course, triggered my uh, my interest as a science journalist in wanting to know why. Why is this happening? Why feet and why the Salish Sea? And we know as well that when this first started, and again, that first discovery back in 2007, that was the the men's blue and white running shoe with the foot in it was discovered. Uh, there were so many theories. Was there a serial 
serial killer? Was there uh, something mm-hmm. else going on? All of these suspicions. Was that something, were you looking at that when you started looking at the science of it or, or how did you go about even looking into this? <laughs> yeah. Yes, because of course, you know, I, uh, I'm a science journalist. I love covering uh, forensic science and, and I'm interested in, you know, crime, true crime in general. And so of course, you know, everyone immediately thought when these feet started washing ashore, uh, you know, is there a serial killer? Is there some, you know, is, does he have something against feet? <laughs> uh, you know, is there someone out there uh, cutting up bodies? And what I discovered was that um, there was no evidence of, of foul play in in any of these particular cases. Um, and one of the one of the things that I was immediately told when I started talking to uh, the British Columbia Coroner Service <clears throat> was that we shouldn't refer to these as severed feet because there was never any evidence that the feet had been severed or cut off uh, by someone else. Uh, they all appeared to have, you know, come apart from the bodies, uh, you know, naturally. So I thought this is just so strange and fascinating. And what I ended up finding was that science really could answer a lot of the questions that I had, like why feet and (laughs) why the Salish Sea. Um, But it came from a lot of scientists who were studying various, you know, areas of science and not particularly looking for the answer to the question of the feet. Um, So, you know, my investigation kind of led me from everything Uh, from oceanography and scientists studying the movement of oil spills uh, in the ocean to scientists who were studying the decomposition of of bodies underwater. And you put all of these different aspects of science together and you start to build a story of what happens and how these feet came to be separated from their owners and came came to Canadian shorelines. I remember at the time as well, or, or when we were, when this first kind of started and these stories were coming in, I remember learning a whole lot about running shoes and sneakers that I did not know yes. before as far as <laughs> how, how protective they are. Uh, how much did you get into that? The, the sneakers, how they were involved and that environment of being in the, in the ocean? Yes. And that was, you know, the first explanation that I saw for why these feet were washing ashore was that, you know, most of them, uh, almost all of them were wearing sneakers. And if you start thinking about um, sneaker technology in the 2000s, we started developing a lot of these um, very light foams in sneakers. And so everything from imagine, you know, your Air Jordans <laughs> of the early 2000s um, that had air pockets in them to these now very lightweight foams um, in shoes like Nike's. And they float. And okay, so that answered one question of, okay, why would the feet in particular um, be washing ashore? And part of that explanation is that uh, the feet were encased in a sneaker that would protect them somewhat from decomposition and that the the sneaker would be lightweight and would float. Okay, so that answered one question, but it opened up so many more questions, you know, but how did the feet get disassembled from their owners? You know, why feet in particular? Um, And why the Salish Sea in particular as a hotspot for this phenomenon? 
Um, so that led me down several several more rabbit holes <laughs> beyond the, the sneakers, um, and starting with you know what happens when a body when a human body goes into the water, um, and for that you have to start looking at some forensic science and and researchers who have studied what happens to bodies in the water. Um, one big factor is whether a body sinks or floats, for example. And while we might imagine that a body that goes into the water is eventually going to float to the surface, it turns out that that's not actually the case uh, very often. Often a body will uh, sink. It doesn't take very much weight for a body to sink. And if it goes down into uh, deep, cold water like you have in your area, it is very likely to sink and stay sunken. And at that point, you're going to not have much oxygen available. And so the decomposition is going to be very different from what it would be if you, know, if you had a body, say, in the woods uh, on land. And what they have found with a number of these feet is that they're covered in a waxy substance called adipocere. And that is a big clue because that adipocere, that waxy substance forms when you've got a body underwater without much oxygen and this, the fatty tissue basically turns into this waxy substance. That substance can then essentially protect the foot. So now you've got the foot um, protected not only by the sneaker, but also by this waxy layer of adipocere. And that can preserve some of the tissue pretty well. Now, that still doesn't answer the question of how did the foot <laughs> get separated from the body? Uh, that has to do with your uh, local wildlife in the water. So when you have this body that has sunken to the bottom, um, what researchers have found based on studies of, you know, taking something like um, a pig and submerging it underwater and seeing how it decomposes uh, is that you've got all of the crabs and, um, you know, all of the, the, the animals underwater that are going to scavenge that body, break it down, they're going to tend to break down the soft tissues. It turns out that our feet are held onto our legs mostly by soft tissues. There's not like a ball and socket joint like you might have on your shoulder. Right. Uh, so, so basically, if you've got a body that has sunken, uh, then these animals are going to break it down. And it's quite likely that they will go through, tear through those ligaments and things that are holding the foot on. And that is how the foot then becomes detached. And oh. if the foot is wearing a sneaker, now you can imagine that the, that foot is going to, um, you know, bob back up to the surface in its, in its lightweight sneaker. Right. So, well, Erica, we have to leave it there for today. But thank you so much. I appreciate your time this morning to talk more about this. Thank you. That is Erica Engelhaupt, freelance science writer and former science editor for National Geographic. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. 
Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.